0: Welcome to 721 Live, the video arm of 721 Ministries. I'm Sam Hunter. I'm glad that you're with us today. Thank you for joining us. The will of God. When we look around this world in which we live, we see the wars, we see death and destruction, we see rapes and murder and disease and slums and homelessness. Is this all the will of God? And so we have to ask ourselves, if it is, then He he's either not a good God or he's not an all-powerful God. But perhaps there is a different perspective, a different alternative understanding of the will of God, and that's what we're going to look at today. I think you're going to find this really interesting and very helpful. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. (music) We're at that point in our deep dive into the Lord's Prayer where Jesus is instructing us to say, Your will be done. Your will be done. Now, if I may pause for a moment and just remind you that one of my driving desires is that as you study the Lord's Prayer and as you listen to our conversations about it, it becomes more personal. It becomes more intimate. It has more meaning so that, for instance, when you say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, you're now thinking to yourself, our Father, yes, I'm in a full full family of Jesus' brothers and sisters, God's children, but He's also my Father, my, my dear, loving, heavenly Father. And He's not just in heaven somewhere far off, He's in the heavens all around me. So my Father, who is all around me, hallowed be your name. Let me pause on your name for a moment before I launch into my prayer. Let me just think about who I'm talking to, and the magnificence and that reverence and respect and even affection for my Father who's all around me, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, my kingdom go, which we referred to in the earlier videos, which you should go back and watch. My kingdom come, your kingdom come, my kingdom go, because we cannot have two kings. And when I say the prayer, every time I say, your kingdom come, my kingdom go. And now we're talking about your will be done. Do you really want His will to be done? Let's recap for a moment before we move forward as to what my process looked like going from wanting my will to be done to wanting His will to be done. So even after I was born again, I did not really want God's will. I wanted my will because God's will to me represented rules. It represented... you know, no fun, it represented restrictions, it just wasn't what I wanted because I did not understand how good, pleasing, and perfect his will was. So, at the very outset, even after I was born again, I didn't want his will, I wanted my will. As I moved in my relationship with him, as I grew closer to him, I got to the point where I said, okay, I accept that his will is better, but... Honestly, I only accepted it begrudgingly. And I often, I still ignore his will back at this stage. I, yeah, okay, I guess it's got to be better, but I, I don't really know. And I, and I still ignored at times to go after my will. And as I kept going and got closer and deeper into the kingdom, I realized I want his will. I want his will. Now, the next step was I don't want mine. And you'll notice I put an exclamation point there because I really don't want mine. As I'm growing and learning that my will doesn't work out very well and I really don't want my will, it's not going well, let's go with His will. I became more and more emphatic that I want His will. And now after 25 years of living with Jesus, of following Jesus, of getting my will, of staying up on the throne, of saying my kingdom come, not yours, I've learned that I really desperately want His will. And I equally desperately don't want my will. Unless it lines up with His, I do not want my will because my will at best is going to give me a C-, and it'll likely be a D or an F. But if I'm in His will, it's always, as we read in Romans 12, 1 and 2, it's always good, pleasing. It's always a perfect will. So I'm at the point now, with all my faults, and all my frailties and shortcomings, I desperately want His will. I desperately do not want my will, no matter what. And I hope you can follow along with that. I hope that you can grow to feel that same way because that is life in the kingdom. That is the life that is truly life within His will, His way, His timing. Now, Let's go back to this idea about the will of God. Because if I want His will and I look around this world, there's a lot of stuff in this world I don't want. And I have to believe that our Heavenly Father doesn't want it either. When we look at the slums around this world, when we look at the World War I and World War II, a, 19, a 20th century that saw hundreds of millions of people die just terrible deaths. We see child traf- for trafficking. We see all these terrible things. Is that the will of God, or perhaps is there a better way to look at it, to view the different aspects of His will? You see, we're very confused about this whole idea of the will of God. I was reading a book by Leslie Weatherhead, The Will of God, and he gave three examples. The first example was a doctor, a doctor himself whose wife was sick with cancer, and he brought in every specialist. He did everything he could do to heal her and save her life, and she died anyway. And so he said to his preacher, I, I guess this is the will of God. But if it was the will of God, then when he was working and trying to heal his wife and using all the advanced medical procedures that he could, was he working against the will of God? And again, Leslie Weatherhead, who was from England and was telling the story about one of his parishioners whose son, a mother, whose son was killed in the, in the bombings of, of uh, London, said, I guess I have to accept this as the will of God. And Leslie Weatherhead thought to himself, well, it may be the will of evil, it may be the will of Hitler, it may be the will of evil nations clashing against each other, but it is not the will of God. And then the third story was when he was in India, and a a friend of his son had died of cholera, and the man was resigned to himself to say, I have to accept this as being the will of God. And Leslie Weatherhead said, I knew him well enough to say, well, may I I speak into that for a moment? There's your other daughter sleeping over there on a a hammock covered by mosquito nets to keep her safe. What if somebody crawled up on this terrace and stuck a, a handkerchief with cholera in it and stuck it on her face and she got sick from that and died? Would you say that was the will of God? And he said, no, of course not. He said, well, don't you see that you're equating the same result with the will of God? One last thing, I have a friend who after his second divorce and after years of his wife speaking to him and speaking to me and me speaking to him that he wasn't investing in the marriage, he wasn't present, he wasn't cheating on her, he wasn't beating her, he just wasn't there emotionally or even physically at times, she left him. And he said to me, I know there's a reason for this, that God's got a reason for this, and I I know this is God's will. And I said, no, it's not God's will, it's your will. It's your will because God hates divorce. So let us get a more clear thinking about God's will and what does it look like. So I think that let's start with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German uh, man of the Lord, who actually went back into Germany under Hitler knowing how dangerous it would be and was ultimately executed by Hitler. He had this observation. Of course, not everything that happens is the will of God, Yet in the last resort, nothing happens without his will. And Jesus picks up on that same theme, of course, and says this, are not two sparrows so for a penny. In other words, they have no value whatsoever. Are not two sparrows so for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's will. Now don't miss that. Not one of these minuscule sparrows will fall to the ground outside your Father's will, and even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth much more than many sparrows. You see, Jesus is saying to us, nothing is happening in your life apart from your Father's will. And you see, there's great comfort in that. If we could truly appropriate that into our lives, no matter what's going on, your Father knows about it. He knows every, your loving, compassionate, Heavenly Father knows all about it. He either allowed it or He may have even caused it. But at a very minimum, as, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, not everything that happens is the will of God, yet in the last resort nothing happens without his will. Jesus says the same thing. Nothing is happening in this world apart from your heavenly Father's will. So number one, we know that he is always in control and that nothing happens apart from his will. And yet, that takes us back to this idea of well, what about all this that's going on in this world in which we now live? This cannot possibly be the will of God as in his intentional will, what he wants. So let's just break this down a little bit. Let's try to understand a little better some different aspects of God's will to understand exactly what's going on in this world in which we're now living. So I'm going to put another slide up here, and we're going to study it this way. His original perfect will, which we saw in the Garden of Eden, his original creation, his original perfect will, and then the world after Genesis 3 in which we're all living. And we will call this his allowable, permissive will because what's happening, he's either allowed it, he's permitted it, and then finally we'll circle back around to his ultimate will which will reflect very closely to his original and perfect will. Let's break this down so we can better understand exactly how these three aspects represent God's will, the will of God. The original and perfect will, a relational and physical paradise, a free relational and physical paradise. You think about the Garden of Eden, a relational and physical paradise, freedom. What would that look like? And when I ask this question, what would that look like, let me start by saying what would not be present in a relational and physical paradise? Well, all the things we just listed. There'd be no slums. There'd be no wars. There'd be no murder. There'd be no danger. There would be nothing to fear. There would be no conflict between families, a relational and physical paradise. There'd be no, no natural things that would happen to us, weather problems that would that harm people. There would be no animals that would harm people. Would there be work? in a relational and physical paradise, a free relational and physical paradise? Well, yes. God put Adam and Eve into the garden to work the garden. It wasn't until after the fall as one of the consequences that God said to the man, now it's going to be hard to work now. There was, see, there was no stress in a relational and physical paradise. There was work, but there was no stress associated with work. Now, what I want you to pause and think about for a moment is this is representing much of what Jesus taught us that if we will follow him if we will live in his kingdom we will be closer and closer to this relational paradise and the physical paradise will be there won't be there there'll still be dangers but there won't be that same level of fear and stress work will be involved but not the stressful work that's what Jesus tells us it looks like in his kingdom so in Genesis 2 Very familiar passage, but I want you to notice that the Lord commanded the man, you are free. You are free. That's a command. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. You're free to do it, but I'm telling you not to do it because the consequences will be bad. He commanded the man you are free to eat from any tree in the garden within this relational and physical paradise. But I'm telling you not. Now, let me pause for a moment. Don't you wish that he hadn't given, had not given them that choice? I sure do. But as we said last week, you see, when it comes to this idea of free will, I want my free will. You want your free will. You just don't want the other person to have his free will because his free will may bring danger and harm and and trouble into your life. But you want your free will. You don't want Adam to have had his, but you want yours. So this is the way the Lord set it up and he must have known what he was doing. Relational and physical. Here's the relational side. Genesis 3.8, I love this passage. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Can you imagine hanging out with God Almighty in the garden in the cool of the day, just being with just being with him as his friend, and again, Jesus is going to bring this back to us. We 'll see this where he says, "Now I want you to start calling me friends you're not a slave, you're not a servant, you're my friend." so were, the original will of God, which was a perfect will, was this relational and physical paradise. Obviously, we are living in a world that is not a relational physical paradise. So how do we view this? And I think it'll help to think of it in this term, his allowable will, his permissive will. Now, he tells us, Jesus gives us examples of this, and we see it in the scripture, his allowable will, his permissible will, both in the world around us and within us ourselves. So he as he cries out to Jerusalem, 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 you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. You were not willing. This is what I longed for, but you stiff-armed me. You know, Stephen, in Acts seven fifty one, right before he's... he's getting ready to be stoned. He says, you stiff-necked people, you always resist the Holy Spirit. See, for some reason or another, our Heavenly Father left it up to us. He gave us the free choice to stiff-arm Him, to deny Him, to not be willing for Him to gather us in. We see this in 2 Peter 3.9. 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And not everyone is coming to repentance. So clearly things are happening in this world that are against God's wishes. It's not what He intended. Let's keep going with this we can follow this a little closer and get a little better idea of exactly what His allowable and His permissive will looks like and why this world in which we're living looks like it looks. C.S. Lewis has this great observation. In the end, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, okay, thy will be done. And boy, have I lived that out in my life. I could probably identify right now five, six, maybe even a dozen times, but certainly five or six times, where I knew, I knew, even as a follower of Jesus, I knew that, I wanted my will over God's will, and so I was going to get my will because I wanted it more than His. I was way back in that process I outlined earlier. And so, looking back, I can see where my Heavenly Father said, fine, Sam, have it your way. Let's see how that works out. And why does He do that? Well, He's going to let us make the mistakes we make. We'll look at that in a moment. Look at what Jesus had to say about divorce. He's being peppered with questions by the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, about divorce. And they ask him, why then, they ask, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Well, I would cast doubt on whether he commanded that he send her away, but he did say give her a certificate of divorce. Jesus replied, Moses, and we could say God, permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. Look at those words. Moses, representing God, permitted you, his permissive will, to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. God hates divorce. But back in this day, If a man divorced a woman, she was out on the street. She had nothing. So to protect her, God said, okay, I know you have hard hearts. I know you're going to to divorce your wives. You must give her a certificate of divorce to protect her. But this is not what we want. So right off the bat, we see that Jesus is saying, this is not intended in the original will. But because you're human we've had to make concessions of course we know that God is sovereign and he is all-knowing and he knew all this was going to happen but apparently he considered it to be a price worth paying to give us free will and let me just pause for a moment on that why would anybody bring children into this world why would you bring children into this world you know that there's a good chance they'll get divorced that they'll suffer heartbreak that they'll, be, they'll lose jobs. They may have trouble with alcohol or a spouse or a family member that has trouble with drugs and alcohol. You know that they stand a good chance of getting sick at some point, perhaps even cancer. They will die. Could be a car wreck. Why would you bring children into this world? The same reason our Heavenly Father set up a world that was not full of robots. Why would He create a world full of robots with no free will? He, he, did, he didn't need that. Why why would you bring children in the world? And if you brought them into the world, why wouldn't you leave them locked up in your yard for for the rest of your life at least? Because you want relationship. The joy of the relationship and the joy cannot be had without free will. This was not what we intended, Jesus says, but we permitted it because of your hard hearts. Let's keep going. I love this quotation that I saw, and I don't know who to give the credit to on this, but it's just a great quotation. It falls under the, why would he do this? Good judgment comes from experience. Experience comes from bad judgment. We are going to grow in our likeness of Jesus. We're going to grow in our conformity to Jesus. We're going to grow deeper into the kingdom, typically not by good times. It can happen in good times, but typically... God is going to allow us, just like you're going to allow your children, to make mistakes so that they can then, from experience, form that good judgment. This is Joseph talking to his brothers who sold him into slavery, dropped him in a pit. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph, with the perspective of looking backwards, can see you tried to hurt me. My father, he allowed you to do it. He permitted you to do this because he was going to work good out of it. He had a plan in the midst of your bad behavior, in the midst of your sin. And we see that in this very famous quote scripture passage, Romans 8, 28, 29. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, for those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. You see, He's going to bring good things out of whatever He allows into your life, but it's all to conform you more and more to the likeness of His Son. And His Son suffered, and so are we. But it's always for our good. And it's always to accomplish the plan that He is going to accomplish, bringing about His ultimate will but in the midst of of His permissive and allowable will, we're living with some of these consequences. Jesus, on His last night, says to Peter, He actually says it to all the disciples, but I want you to take a look at this and see exactly what He says singling Peter out. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, you, Simon, not all of you, but you, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. I want you to think about this. Jesus is telling Simon, Peter, that Satan wants to sift him like wheat. Right off the bat, we see that Satan has to ask permission, just like we see in the book of Job. Satan has to ask permission. That should give you great comfort. I'm not afraid of Satan. I know he's evil and I know he's powerful, but I'm not afraid of him because if he's coming after me, my Heavenly Father allowed it. Jesus allowed it. Why? Because He wants to sift something off of me or out of me. He wants to shake it out that shouldn't be there that's holding me back from the life that is truly life. So I have a saying, and I say this often in my prayers to my Heavenly Father and to Jesus, thank you for never giving up on me. Please, never let up on me. If I need to be sifted because there's something in my life that shouldn't be there, that you don't want there, that I don't want there, but I I don't even know it's there, I can't get rid of it myself, bring it on and that's what he said to Peter I'm not going to stop Satan I'm going to permit him I'm going to allow him to sift you as wheat and the reason I'm going to do this is that when you have turned back you'll be able to strengthen your brothers Peter you won't be able to do it unless I let you go through this experience unless I permit this experience So why does He do this? Why are we living in this permissive and allowable? Because He's using it to shape and conform us to the likeness of His Son. Let's keep going. In Luke 15, we have three stories. The story of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. It's not the prodigal son, it's the prodigal father. We'll get to that in a moment. In the first one, lost coin, lost sheep. Here's what Jesus says about the results of finding the lost coin and the lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Do you see this? There is rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. More so than the 99 er didn't need to. I know this sounds like a Grant's tomb question, but who is rejoicing in the presence of angels? Our Heavenly Father, Jesus, the Holy Spirit. They're high-fiving when one person turns around. Think if you had multiple children. And let's say you had seven. And six of them are living the right life. They're following Jesus. They're obedient. They're good kids. They're really keeping it right down the center of the lane, but one of them deviates off and just goes completely off the rails. When he or she comes back, imagine the joy. But that joy is not possible if you didn't give them the free will to leave and to come back. And this is why your Heavenly Father is allowing it for us. We see this in the last example in Luke 15, the parable of the lost son. The reason I say the prodigal father and not the prodigal son is prodigal means wastefully extravagant. And Jesus' point is the father with his grace and compassion is wastefully extravagant with it. And we see this at the very end or at the very beginning of of the story. Jesus continued there was a man, the father. The story is about the father who had two sons, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. That was a risky thing to do, wasn't it? To listen to give his son what he asked for. I have to imagine the son had not been a very loving son, had, not, had been rebellious up to this point. This didn't just happen overnight. And his father, I'm assuming, was able to look at the son and say, I'm going to have to give him his free will. I'm going to have to let him get this rope and go out and experience it. Remember, good judgment comes from experience. Experience comes from bad judgment. He gave him what he asked for. In the end, there are only two kinds of people, C.S. Lewis says, those who say, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, okay, thy will be done. But in the end of the story, the father who is constantly watching out for his wayward son, sees his son returning, And in his joy, he jumps off the porch, lifts up his long robes, which a man in that culture never did, and ran to his son and covered him with hugs and kisses, which is what your Heavenly Father does when one of us turns back around through our free choice and our free will to come back home. Let's finish up with his ultimate will, both in you and all around us his ultimate will, which he is going to bring back and he starts this process in us when Jesus and the Holy Spirit move into our lives. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. In John 15, 15, Jesus says, I no longer call you servants. You're not a slave. You're not a robot because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends i want to keep going with these passages jesus is setting up at the very outset he's setting up the beginning of the new heaven and the new earth which we're going to see in john 1 14 john says to us the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us i want you to remember that word dwelling in just a moment he made his dwelling among us we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth And then years later, John writes, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. Jesus appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus started this process of God's ultimate will. When He came back, He came, when He came, excuse me, He came to usher in the kingdom of God, to bring it about so that we could now live in it, to start to experience heaven now. His ultimate will is starting today as we live in harmony with Jesus with the Holy Spirit indwelling us living in the kingdom of God it starts in us this new heaven and this new earth this ultimate will and then he climaxes all of history and creation with the new heaven and the new earth then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea no longer any sea means the, in, the, in that culture sea meant danger it meant the unknown it meant Uh, It meant evil. No more of that. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place. Remember Jesus? He made His dwelling among us. God's dwelling place is now, and I added again, because He's back with us. We're now back walking in the garden among the people, and He will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He's going to bring His ultimate will back, both starting now in you as He he grows this relational and physical paradise through the Holy Spirit indwelling you with Jesus, and then He's going to start it all over again, and He's going to dwell with us. Now, to conclude, I want you to notice that in the backdrop, I've had a lily pond, and the reason I've had this lily pond is I want to tell you about the lily pond theory. Now, what you're looking at is a pond with lily pads all over it. And I want you to think in terms of, let's just say down here on this lily pad, this is where I started my adult life after college, right? Let's just call it that lily pad. Now, I find myself at 66 at a lily pad over here. And I think I'm where Jesus, I know I'm where they want Jesus and my Heavenly Father want me to be, doing 721 ministries. But I did not leap from that lily pad to that lily pad. Oh no, there was a lot of deviating from lily pad to lily pad before I got to this point. Some of those lily pads I liked. Some I did not like. Some were my choice. Some the door just opened. Others were not my choice. But each time, both in my work life, in my relationships, in my spiritual journey, each time now I can look back and say he was in total control the entire time. He was allowing me at times to move from one lily pad to the next and he was going to use that. At other times, he was perhaps pushing me to another lily pad. At other times, I wanted to go to a lily pad and that wasn't the best choice, but he was going to use that choice. This is what living... From both both his original perfect will to where we live now, which is in his permissive will, his allowable will, getting back to his ultimate will. So perhaps at 66, doing what I'm doing for 721 Ministries is his ultimate will for me, at least at this stage of my life. But that was not a straight shot. Each lily pad represented a time in my life where had I not been on that lily pad, the door to the next one would not have opened. And I know you can look back on your life and see that. And so I hope this is a good example of what the three aspects of God's will is. As we conclude, I hope that this helps with an idea of why are things happening like they're happening and what is a loving God, an all-powerful God, doing in the midst of this world in which we live? He's working to bring good out of everything in your life. He's giving you choices. He's letting you choose the lily pads at times and at other times he's pushing you to the next lily pad. And all the while he is in total control. Nothing happens apart from the will of your Father. And he is always bringing good because he is always seeking to conform you to the likeness of his Son. What a great God. What a great God. There's more. You know it. Come, as Jesus would say, and find it.